Hi, this is Ann Cavero with another episode of Speeding Past 80. My guest today is Tony Kolink. He's the author of The Harwood Mysteries, and he has a new mystery out, Murder at Pinwood Manor. And this is a wonderful story. I've read it. I've underlined some things I want to talk to Tony about. But basically, it's a story about envy, forgiveness. And what else would you add to that, Tony? Hi, Anne. It's so nice to be back with you. Um, I mean, it's, it's well, it's a murder mystery. So, I mean, I don't want to forget the... Uh, the main thing is it's really a story of a whodunit, uh, a crusade time medieval murder mystery um, with uh, some of these other fun themes that you mentioned. You know, I thought pretty early on, I figured out who the murderer was. Oh, you did. So wrong. Oh. <laughs> Such a surprise at the end. And there are other surprises, too, about how people discern their path and who they are. I really enjoyed it because I'm pretty good at figuring out whodunits. You totally fooled me. Oh, was- see, I was afraid I made it too obvious. Well, good. That makes me feel better. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's part of what made it an enjoyable read. And one of the things that I really like about this book is it addresses some real questions, authentic questions about life. I think middle schoolers struggle with questions about life, and they do so quietly. They don't really have a lot of places sometimes where they can talk to people about what they're going through. My uh, younger daughter is a principal at a school for autistic children in Los Angeles, and they're high school children. And she talks about how difficult it is for them to, to open up and to talk about what's really inside them. And I think that's true for a lot of children today. Their parents are busy. uh, They suffer in silence. But a book like this gives them a touchstone for thinking about and maybe talking with other people about what they're going through. And that's one of the reasons I encourage grandparents and parents to read middle school books, to give them something to share with their children. Absolutely. And, and that's that's something that's really important to me when I wrote the series for, you know, teens, you know, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Um, you know, I wanted it to be that kind of a book. And I, I talk a lot to middle school classrooms um, about uh, writing or about the Crusades or whatever their, you know, their, pre- their principals or teachers want me to talk about. And one of the things I tell them is one of the reasons I wrote this series was because if you look at all of the mainstream literature for our teens, even the stuff that isn't total trash, and there's plenty of total trash out there, but even the stuff that isn't total trash totally divorces God from our lives. And like I, I tell the kids, I'm like, look, you're all here in a Catholic school. You, you know, probably pray at night before bed. Your parents take you to church on Sunday. You think about, you know, life. Um, you think about God, you pray to God, hopefully. But if you were to read one of these books, you would think nobody ever does any of those things. So it doesn't represent real life. And I wanted a series where that could be represented, but also it could be represented very organically, you know, in a, in a you know, medieval abbey kind of environment. It's a lot easier to, you know, to represent that because it was so, it saturated the, you know, the culture uh, at that time. And so, yeah, I hope that is something that kids can take out of it is to realize they don't have to run away from the faith part of their lives because it's part of our everyday lives. It should be normal 
you know, just regular life to think about these things. You know, that's so true. I heard Jane Yolen speak a couple of years ago, and she's a children's author that has written more than 100 books. She said, you know, we have taken God out of children's literature, and we need to bring that back. And I think that's true for general children's literature. There's never a mention of God. No matter how bad things get, nobody prays. And yet I think when things are bad, the first instinct any human being has is to reach out in some form of prayer. I think kids often feel inferior in some way. Like Christina, in the book, she's so aware of the scar that she bears on her beautiful face. And she feels as though somehow that makes her less, less than she might be. But she's so beautiful on the inside. And this is what Zan sees. And this is what I think other people see in children too. The beauty on the inside, yet our middle school kids feel like I'm less or I'm inferior. I'm not as much as. And then they envy the ones they see that they think are more than they are. Yeah. Christina is actually one of my favorite characters in the series. You know, I introduced her in book two, The Haunted Cathedral. And then in book four is where she gets the scar. Um, these are spoilers, so don't tell any, you know, your kids or grandkids this if you're listening. But, um, you know, Christina was always sort of a more worldly girl than the other girl character, Lucy, who was a, always a much more kind of spiritual girl. And so it was a nice balance, I thought, for the series to have these kind of two girls sort of be a little bit of a, you know, counter uh, against each other, not against each other, but kind of counterweights to each other. But Christina's character arc, you know, was always meant to be, you know, she starts maybe a little bit too focused on the worldly and how she looks and, you know, how she can use her worldly, you know, gifts to get a good husband and all this kind of thing. And then she goes through this really traumatic experience in book four, where she gets this scar. And book five was sort of, I really like book five, because it, it finally brings Christina's arc more to, you know, to its not full conclusion, but you, you know, you see her growing, you know, through, you know, the book and through being loved. And then when I, I just finished book six, uh, which is going to be the final book in the series, won't come out till uh, later 2024. But you know, that really kind of closes the arc on all the characters, but on, on Christina too. And you could see how much she's grown from book two to book six, you know, realizing, you know, the importance of, you know, her own, her own inner beauty and strength and not putting too much weight on how she looks. And I think especially our, our teens are just bombarded by that message today about how do you look? You have to look perfect. You have to be cute all the time. You have to take your selfies exactly perfect and take a million of them and pick the right one. And everybody's going to judge you if you don't look perfect or you have a funny face on. And it just seems that they really need to hear that kind of a message in the end. Another character whose life takes a real turn is Lucy's. And you really shocked me at the end of this book with Lucy. And I can hardly wait not only to see what happens to Christina and Zan, I can't imagine where you're going with Lucy in book six. I hope it's someplace great. She's such a good character. Yes. Again, not to not to give away that the cliffhanger. Book five is the one book that really does have a few cliffhangers going into the final book. I mean, they don't have to be cliffhangers, but they kind of really are cliffhangers. And one of them does involve Lucy. And like I said, Lucy's been our spiritual girl the whole series. And she's wonderful, like you said. I mean, she's, but, but, you know, Lucy's a real person too, at least in my mind. And real people are not perfect. 
And all throughout, especially you can start seeing it in book four, you know, and you see it in book five too. And in the Lucy short stories, I actually have a series of Lucy short stories that um, I often give away free on the website, or you can get them on Kindle for 99 cents. I'm eventually going to put together a Lucy anthology of short stories. But you can see one of the things she struggles with, even though she seems like such a perfect person, you know, is that there's still this sort of bit of of defiance in her to the rules. And it's it's gentle. It's not malicious in any way. And, you know, she doesn't do things for the wrong reasons, but sometimes she's making decisions that are not complying with the rules. And so I wanted Lucy to not just be some perfect person, because that's just not the reality of life. And so, yeah, Lucy makes some decisions in book five, which are going to have consequences. And um, I felt like it was appropriate for Lucy to have to experience some conflict in her life too, just the way everybody else does. You know, that was so good. I like the idea that she did have consequences, even though her reasoning is sound because she makes her decisions for the sake of a moral greater good. Is that correct? Do you think? So, you know, this is really interesting. Now, you know, you might know, um, you might be familiar with CatholicTeenBooks.com, which there's about 15 or 16 of us Catholic authors writing for teens, all different genres. My books are just one of many really excellent series. So I always want to plug CatholicTeenBooks.com when I'm on an interview, because if any of your listeners are looking for good books for their teens, and for whatever reason, the Harvard Mysteries doesn't sound like it, you know, check out CatholicTeenBooks.com anyway, frankly, because you can always get more books for your teens. But when I was getting uh, some of of my co-authors at CatholicTeenBooks.com, when I was writing book five and getting to the part of the book that you're talking about where Lucy makes these decisions that lead to these consequences for her, she kind of has the perspective of, I'm doing something to help a person in need and so it's okay if I break the rules of my my vows that I made as a novice nun. And I originally had it written a little bit more like you just said, where Lucy seemed very justified in what she did. And I actually got some pushback from some of my Catholic Teen Books authors who pointed out like, you know, today kids are hearing too much that they should just be able to do whatever they want because it seems like the right thing. And, you know, and so I I wind up just slightly modifying kind of some of the reaction that Lucy gets from, for instance, the other nuns and and Father Andrew, because the reality is she, you know, she has, she breaks her vows in order to do what she thinks is right. And Sister Regina, like who's her mentor through the whole series, you know, she says to her something along the lines of, we have to be able to trust God that, you know, that the right thing can be done without breaking our promises or our vows. And I think that's the lesson that Lucy was sort of missing. She tried to do the right thing in her estimation, but did she do the right thing? I mean, I guess the reader can make that judgment, but I think both sides of that issue are represented in what happens. You know, I actually underlined that line about trusting God's plan without breaking your vows. I did underline that because I think that is so hard for people to grasp that, you know, if you do the right thing first, well, then you're getting into what is the right thing. But your first vow is to God, and that's who your first responsibility is for. Is that right? I mean, think of it in the context of marriages. 
you know, it's too often that people wind up breaking their vows under the guise of something like, oh, but whatever, this other thing was so good for me that, you know, whatever, God put this other person in my life or, oh, I really, this person needed me. And they can justify a lot of things. But at the end of the day, um, I've been listening to the, uh, I guess it's been the catechism in a year. I've been listening to both with Father Mike Schmitz. But one of the things he was talking about on the marriage section was, you know, we take our marriage vows recognizing there's going to come a day when you don't want to keep your vows. And that's why you're making this promise. And I think it's a similar, you know, kind of issue that, you know, Lucy's going through as a, a novice nun who took certain vows of obedience that, you know, when the day came for her to have to make a decision, you know, like Sister Regina says, you have to trust that, you know, the right decision is the one where you keep your vows. Um, but I do think it's a it's a murky moral situation that, that Lucy finds herself in. And I think we could probably identify with why she does what she does and this kind of thing. And for kids, I think it's it's all right for them to see that there are these kind of murky situations. And I think it's important for them to see that, um, to have represented the view that, you know, but you need to trust God through all of these decisions you have to make in your life in the end. You know, I think that's what's not being heard today. I have tried to tell young couples who've decided to live together that the problem is you will run up against tough situations and without the commitment, without the vow, this will end. You need that vow. And that is the truth. You need the vow. And I really had not thought about, though, in other situations, keep the vow first and God will work out the details. That's powerful. It's powerful, but it's really tough to do. And it's not always clear in the moment when we're making, you know, sometimes you know, Lucy has to make a decision with a lot of time pressures and with a lot at stake in her decision. That's why we have the sacrament of confession in the end, right? I mean, if we wind up making the wrong mistake, there's forgiveness if we avail ourselves of it. So I think God recognizes that we are you know, we're going to make the wrong decisions a lot. And that's why we need to be able to make use of that sacrament. And be open to changing what we think about how things work. Yes. Yeah. And the next time when you're confronted with a similar situation, you know, have you learned? And then maybe that's the problem with so many of us, including myself, is it seems like we're very slow to learn. <laughs> but yes, but hopefully we're heading in that direction. You know, I thought I would have everything figured out at least by 60, if not 50. And no, <laughs> I don't have everything figured out. And it's such a surprise that I don't. But maybe that's part of the beauty of life. We keep learning. We keep growing. Well, Tony, this has been really interesting. If you have not started the Harwood Mysteries, I would recommend getting the first book and the rest of them as a set for your children or grandchildren for Christmas. If you want to start with Murder at Pinwood Manor, that's fine because each book can be read alone. Right, Tony? Yeah, I wrote them like that. Um, and, and I even had a few reviewers who got book five and did a review. And they said, yes, you know, we can follow the story. But they also realized, especially with book five, that there's a lot that these characters have gone through that they haven't experienced. And I'm not going to be able to regurgitate it all, you know, in book five. So I always say, well, sure, you could read book five first, but why would you want to go back and read book one first? That, that one's also very good. And you can follow, you know, the characters. We haven't even talked about Zan, the main character, but... Oh, you're right. Oh. But I, I love that, though, because... Book five was really meant for Lucy and Christina to 
really shine in in their story and their character arcs. And I think you you picked up on that in your reading. Um, and that's why, you know, I wrote the series so it wouldn't just be for boy readers. You know, there's really some really good girl characters in here. But yeah, so I mean, the whole series builds on itself, but each book is standalone, but there's spoilers in book five to several of the other books, especially like the end of book four is a pretty dramatic event. And that's pretty well spoiled in book five. So, well, you know, Zan's future is uncertain in book five, too. It ends with an uncertain future for him. And I, too, would recommend starting with book one. And uh, if you want to buy the whole set, you've got one more book after this one you can buy later as a gift for a child or a grandchild. But at least start with book one. I think they will be as interested as I am in seeing how the series turns out. Tony, I really appreciate your writing for middle school children. I think that you are opening their hearts and minds, and I think you're doing it in a way that will totally involve them in story. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Anne, for having me. I, I appreciate uh, you plugging the books as, uh, you know, as somebody who wouldn't normally be the demographic to read them. So it's it's so nice when I hear adults who really enjoy the series, because I did try to write it you know, not just for teens, I've kind of wrote it for myself, too. Um, and, and you can get the whole set either, you know, I have all the links on my website, antonycolink.com, or you can get them through Loyola Press, or through Amazon, or go to your Catholic bookstore, you can get them there, too, hopefully. Tony, thanks so much for joining me. And thank you for listening, everyone to Speeding Past 80. We will be back next week with another episode. Thanks so much. <laughs>